All right, so I am going to jump right into the book of James this morning, an introduction to the book of James. Uh, we'll start with the question, who was James, right? We've got to do this stuff. It's important. It's important to consider. If you opened your Bible earlier when Tyler asked you to, to the book of James, you will see in chapter 1, verse 1, that James introduces himself as James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the ESV says, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there are three prominent Jameses in the New Testament, all right? The, probably the most well-known is James, the son of Zebedee uh, and the brother of John. So he was among the three disciples who were the closest to Jesus. He was present on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was also the first apostle to die. Uh, he dies in Acts chapter 12, right at the beginning of the chapter. Why does Jesus spend all that time with James, the son of Zebedee, only to have him die within a couple of years of Jesus ascending? We don't know, uh, but that was God's plan for James. You know, we talked about when we did the book of John, that John lived into his 90s, and by that time, John may have been like, you know, James, James may have gotten the better end of this deal, you know, leaving us 30 years ago. Um, but that was the story of James. James is not the author of this book, right? Uh, so there's another James. He is called James, the son of Alphaeus. He's listed in the list of disciples uh, in Matthew 10. Uh, he is referred to in Mark 15:40 as James the Less. Uh, I don't think that that refers to his, like, status. So it's not a, you know, it's not like, you know, James the, like, lesser James. Uh, it probably means um, perhaps James the Younger or even James the Short, okay? So uh, he, uh, maybe Mark is even saying little James there uh, is what he's saying. So little James grows up, he takes the gospel over into the area of Persia, he dies a martyr's death. Little James is also not the writer of this book. So you've got James, one of the apostles, who was among those three, and then you've got little James, who was also among the apostles, who was also um, not the writer of this book. And then we have James, the brother of Jesus. And most people believe that that is the James who wrote this book. According to the Gospels, Mary and Joseph had children after the birth of Jesus. Uh, James, James, the brother of Jesus, is mentioned in Matthew 13, 55, where uh, the Pharisees, the, the people who are coming to accuse Jesus, say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Uh, so there's James. He is there. He's listed the first, so he's probably the oldest, uh, there's a little episode in Mark chapter 3 where James, the brother of Jesus, shows up to take Jesus to the crazy house. Uh, the, the, his mother and his brothers come and they say, I'm sorry, he has lost his mind. We are going to take him back to Nazareth with us, which means little uh, James, the brother of Jesus, rather, did not believe in Jesus uh, for a period of his life. Um, at some point, he did believe. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that the risen Jesus Christ appeared to James. This James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. 
In Acts 15, he is a very important figure who helps decide some important matters in the church. And then Paul refers to him in Galatians 2.9, along with Peter and John, as pillars of the church. And he is one of the people who met with Paul after his conversion to Christianity. All right, so that is the James we're talking about. It's easy to be confused and think that Peter, James, and John, that that's the James. This is a different James who wrote the book of James. So if James is the brother of Jesus, why doesn't he mention that? I mean, that would be a pretty good thing to have in your bio uh, if you were going to try to get a book published, right? You know, I've written a book. I'm the brother of Jesus. It's kind of a tell-all. You won't believe the things that happen, but James calls himself a, a servant of the Lord Jesus. Why is that? And I think a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, he knows that his spiritual relationship with Jesus is more important than his physical relationship. The fact that he and Jesus have the same mother uh, is less important than that he and Jesus are both uh, sons of their father in heaven because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Um, James isn't impressed by his earthly status. Uh, James could have also said, he could have said, I am the brother of the Lord. I am the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And you know what? I discipled the apostle Paul. He could have said that. He doesn't say that. Uh, and then most importantly, he calls himself a servant. That is his identity. I want to talk about, we talked about identity a couple of weeks ago. What is James's identity? I am a servant of Christ. And if you are a Christian in this room today, that should be your identity as well. We are servants of Christ, along with James and the many other saints who have gone before us. However, we should not ignore that this man grew up in the household with Jesus. So Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life in almost total obscurity. His father was some kind of builder, Joseph. The last time we see Joseph is when Jesus goes to the temple at age 12, and then Joseph apparently died, which means that Jesus probably took over the family business and provided for his little brother, James. So James grew up in Jesus' household. Can you imagine what that was like, you children who have older brothers? If you're a child in here who has an older brother, can you imagine what it was like to have Jesus as an older brother? Because when Mary said, you should be more like your brother, you would have to say, I know, absolutely right. Um, on the other hand, he would have also grown up, I suspect, saturated with Jesus' teaching. Uh, so surely, I mean, Jesus was the most gentle man, person, whoever lived. I'm sure he was a very nice brother to grow up with. Older brothers, you should be more like Jesus in your relationship with your younger brothers. Um, and so in this epistle, what we see is that James is very rooted in the teaching of Jesus. There's a lot of overlap with the teaching that Jesus does in the Gospels. And so you get the feeling that this is a guy who grew up with Jesus, and he's heard these things a lot. These were things that he heard throughout his life. So what's going on in the book of James? So he writes, as I mentioned earlier, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. So G, uh, James is writing to Jewish believers who have fled their home in Jerusalem due to persecution. You may have heard the word diaspora uh, related to Jewish believers. Sometimes you'll hear the the Jewish believers being referred to all over the world as the diaspora. 
In Tel Aviv, there's a museum of the diaspora that explores all the different things that Jewish people have done around the world. Um, it's actually the, the same Greek word here is diaspora for scattered. So James is writing to Jewish believers who have scattered all over the known world at the time. Um, so what happened is, if you remember, in Acts chapter 8, Stephen was stoned, and there was a great persecution that grew up in the church, uh, around the church in Jerusalem, and many believers had to flee. Because if you were a Jewish Christian, you probably lost your family, your job, you were kicked out of the synagogue, and then with the persecution that arose because of the, the, the martyring of Stephen, they moved out. So James, who was the pastor, is writing to these Jewish believers who have been scattered, helping them to know how to live. So, you know, if you were a Jew, the whole world revolved around Jerusalem, the temple. Well, now you can't live there anymore, but that's okay in Christianity. You don't have to be at the temple anymore, and so James is explaining a lot of that to them, and he's their pastor. He knows them. He loves them. It would be very similar to me writing a letter to Evan or to Michaela or to any of the other students who have gone and saying, hey, I miss you. I'm so sorry you're away from us. Here's some things I think that you should keep in mind now that you have gone to college. And then finally, the date of James. Most people believe that James was the earliest New Testament book written. It's, it's very primitive. Some of the issues that are discussed even in the middle of Acts regarding, you know, does a Christian have to obey the, the Old Testament law and some of those things? It feels like that James is sort of written before some of those issues. He doesn't mention any of that. So, James is writing probably within 10 years of Jesus ascending, and he's writing to a very young Jewish church that is trying to make sense of what is happening around them. All right, so for two years, we considered the claims of Jesus in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we kind of did, you know, we kind of took John, and I think John, you know, we held up Jesus in the book of John, and we looked at Jesus and his teaching from every angle. And, and sometimes, I'll confess, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to apply. You know, here is a, here is a statement about Jesus. Consider that. Who, who is Jesus? What is his import to our life? And, and not that there's not application, but sometimes it's very broad, and we're just trying to learn about Jesus and who Jesus is. James is the opposite of that, and that's why I thought it would be a good uh, epistle for us to follow up the book of John. Jesus takes all the things that we know about Jesus and the things that he taught and the things that we've learned, and he applies it to our life. So this will be a very applicational, heavy study that we're going to embark on right now. John was about faith. James is about living faith. And he exhorts us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And like his big brother, James will not let us get away with standing on our good intentions. All right, so he's going to take that scalpel and he's going to take the anesthesia and be like, put that over there because I'm going right in. And we're going to feel that week after week as we go through the book of James. I have taught James several times in several different contexts, and that is nice for me. I like that. So I've, I've told you before, sometimes when I finish a book, I'm like, okay, now I need to preach that book because I understand it better. So I have studied James, and, and I, I think that I understand the theme of James to be the wisdom of God 
applied, all right? So I'm going to do something very unusual this morning, and if you were one of those people who prepared by reading James, the first chapter, I am going to start in the middle of the book, all right? I'm going to start in the middle. I'm going to start in James 3, 13 through 18, but let me assure you of this. If you, I'm going to try to send out emails, and I'll try to tell you each week. Next week, we will cover James 1, 2 through 4, and the trials that we just sang about earlier. So if you want to get ahead and read James 1, 2 through 4, I will also send this out in an email to you, but if you would like a good commentary to read alongside of me, uh, a commentary that I am going to be using, uh, it is, there's a commentary on the book of James, uh, James, and it's by a guy named D. Edmund Kiebert. All right, I'll send that out in an email. But if you're the kind of person who you're like, I would like to be reading along, reading ahead, you can get the commentary by D. Edmund Hebert, and that will be very helpful for you as you prepare to hear me on Sunday mornings. All right, so we're going to start in the middle. We're going to talk about wisdom. I think that what James is doing is he's, he's working up to that point, that is James 3, 13 through 18, and then after that, he's going to work away from it, and we'll see that in the song that we sang, James 1, 5, if any of, one, if any of you asks for wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach. If you need wisdom, God will give it to you if you ask, and he won't even say you should have asked earlier. He will be very happy that you ask for wisdom, and he will give it to you, but do not be double-minded. James says. Don't be double-minded. If you want wisdom, you better subscribe to that wisdom, all right? So that's where James starts the book, and so then he works through all of these different things, and we'll see them in the, um, in the book as we go along. Wisdom and trials, wisdom and riches, wisdom and the tongue. That's a hard one. Wait till you get there. Like, no anesthesia and, like, rusty scalpel. Like, he's, like, really seriously going after us there. Wisdom and partiality, wisdom and living faith. And then we get to James chapter 3, verses 13. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Let me read it as you read along with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition... In your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make So what we're going to see this morning as we take this passage right out of the middle of the book is that James is going to hold up the wisdom of the world and wisdom that is from above. And he's going to say, here is the fruit. Here are the consequences. And then in chapter four, which is right after it, which we won't actually get to probably till November, he's going to say, okay, so which do you want to be? Do you want to be a friend of the world? Because if you do that, you become an enemy of God. Or do you want to be a friend of God? Which means you'll have to be an enemy of the world. I mentioned to you guys Proverbs 14, 12 a lot. I hope you know it by now. I hope you think of it sometimes. Uh, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. God's word teaches me and you, if you listen, to be highly skeptical of what we think 
If I say this seems right to me, James wants me to know that I should immediately think, wait a second, this seems right to me. Wait a second. I may be in danger. I need to check out and see, am I listening to wisdom from above or wisdom that comes from below? All right, so let's take this passage apart. It's a great passage. I think there's a lot here for us to learn today. And uh, James starts out with a rhetorical question, right? For, for all of you children in here, rhetorical question means you shouldn't raise your hand and try to answer. It's a, it's a question for you to consider within your heart. So he says, who among you is wise and understanding? All right, so you can look to your left, you can look to your right, you can look down. Probably the best we can come up with at this point is, well, I don't know. Uh, am I wise and understanding? And James would say, thank you for asking. Let me help you decide that. How can we decide if someone is wise and understanding? And you guys know, we talk about this in here a lot, it is very easy these days for someone to, to have a platform to hang out a shingle and say, I am a purveyor of wisdom. Worldly wisdom is all over YouTube and your podcast app. Lots of it out there, all right? So how do we decide if someone is wise? Uh, first of all, we often will say someone is wise if they have been very successful in business because if someone has been able to make a lot of money, they must be wise, right? Because God blesses those who are wise and they must have like figured it out. This is why, by the way, a lot of elder boards are filled with men who have made a lot of money because we look around and we go, that person must really know wisdom, okay? So some people would say that. For some weird reason, we also think that famous people are wise. This one I don't understand at all, uh, but pretty much if a person, you know, the old, like, I play a doctor on TV, like, it's kind of, it's funny because it's true, right? Like, that person is famous, so therefore I might should listen to them on this difficult societal issue that nobody can figure out, all right? And so, like, in ages past, we would look to, like, teachers and sages and elders to help us make in important decisions, and now we just find some, like, influencer on the internet, and we're like, what does she think? Or former football players, like, whoever, like, they must be wise, right? Because everybody knows who they are. Um, a person with a lot of degrees must be wise. You hear people say, I just want to hear from somebody who has a lot of letters after their name. Doesn't matter if they graduated from a university that doesn't know the difference between a boy and a girl, but they've got some kind of degree. So they must be wise. And then another interesting thing just to observe, our society has really like flipped over wisdom because one of the things that our society thinks is that there's a lot of wisdom in youth. People think that, you know, you hear people talk about the wisdom of children rather than the wisdom of elders. We're like, you know, oh, a child, a child is so wise. That poor little Scandinavian girl who's outspoken about climate change, she is so wise. I have no idea why. I have no idea why I should listen. Like, she walked out of high school one day, and now we're all, like, paying attention to what she says about the climate. It's ludicrous. People, the things that we think make people wise are absolutely ludicrous. So what is God's standard for wisdom? Well, he says, he says it right here. James says, by his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Good works and humility. Actions and attitude, all right? So how do we know somebody is wise? Well, first of all, we look at their actions, all right? So this is a little bit of another point about introduction for the book of James. If you've ever read the book of James, maybe you've been troubled because James says 
faith without works is dead. Lots of people have been troubled by James' perspective on works and salvation. Martin Luther called this epistle an epistle of straw. It didn't really fit what he was trying to do at the time. So he had a hard time squaring, how do you square the concept of justification by faith alone and faith without works is dead? And some people have said, well, Paul and James are just at odds with each other. And James wrote early and Paul wrote later and Paul corrected him. And we'll talk about this when we get to chapter 2. But I assure you, James and Paul are not at odds. And I'll tell you why I think that, because they're talking about two different things. Paul is talking about saving faith that is grounded in the finished work of Christ, and James is speaking of living faith that acts upon the things that Christ has commanded. So Paul is about saving faith, James is talking about living faith, and we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2. So wisdom is marked by faith that leads to good deeds. You can look at a person's deeds and tell if they're wise, and then also their attitude. Don't ignore that second phrase, the meekness of wisdom. And that word could be translated gentleness. Maybe some of your Bibles say the gentleness of wisdom. So meekness is the exact opposite of arrogant self-assertiveness that so dominates our culture. And meekness is not weakness. It's said about Moses. Moses was the meekest man who ever lived, which he also wrote. Not, never sure how that worked out. Maybe he was just taking dictation. You know, okay, Lord, I'll write that. Uh, meekness is a heart that is gentle when dealing with others. And it's marked by strength, but strength that is self-controlled. And it's a characteristic that is absolutely gone from leadership in our society. And by the way, this is why we can tell that many of our leaders lack wisdom, because they lack meekness. All right, so how about the fruit of the wisdom of the world. So this is in 14 through 16. So having stated how you can tell that a person is wise and understanding, James follows up and says, okay, there are these two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom from above and there's wisdom from below. Wisdom from above is marked by good deeds and humility, but what about wisdom from below? How can we recognize that kind of wisdom? And he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false about the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. So this is very, very plain teaching. Like, don't think this is hard to understand, because it's not hard to understand. The fruits of the wisdom of the world are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And where selfish ambition and bitter jealousy exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. Okay, so the wisdom, we talked about the self-autonomy last, uh, two weeks ago. We talked about, you know, the world says, you know, I belong to myself, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So wisdom from the world directs you to that kind of life. It says, Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy make complete sense, but it leads to chaos. Consider this. Just consider this with me. People are upset all the time, right? If you look at an internet news site, the, the headline is probably going to be something that says, listen to what so-and-so blasted so-and-so about. Maybe you're upset all the time. Could the problem be 
that we are listening to wisdom that is from below. And I, I think this passage actually helps us understand some of the problems that are associated with self autonomy, because self-autonomy, remember, that's what people think. It's a petri dish to grow jealousy and selfish ambition. When it comes to wisdom, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are deal breakers. Like, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you are not wise. And so we can look at many of the people around us today who are our leaders and even some who people would say, well, those are wise people. And we could say, no, they, they display selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. So take them off the table. Selfish ambition, is, it's a huge problem. If I'm my own, then I can do whatever it takes to get ahead. And I want to be clear. I, this is really important. James says selfish ambition. He doesn't say ambition. Paul actually in, in 2 Corinthians says, I make it my ambition to please God. So not all ambition is bad. It's interesting. I, I told the, the middle schoolers earlier, I was reading in Matthew 20 this week, and there's that funny little passage where James and John, the other James, James and John's mom, Mrs. Zebedee, comes up to Jesus and says, can my children sit on your right and left hand? And you know, like the other disciples are furious. How dare you, Mrs. Zebedee? That is such a crazy question to ask. And Jesus turns to James and John, and he says, well, you know, that's a lot to ask, because to sit at my right hand and my left, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Are you up for that? And they go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. And he's like, you will. You will suffer. But then he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to be a servant, because the Son of Man came to be a servant, and that's how you be great. And it's interesting to me, because he doesn't say, James and John, Mrs. Zebedee, you shouldn't want to be great. He says, no, that's a, that's a good desire, but let me tell you what good, true greatness is. True greatness is to be a servant. So the problem with ambition isn't the ambition. The problem with ambition is the self, selfish ambition. And then bitter jealousy, because an obvious consequence of self-autonomy is that when other people have things and you want them and you don't have them, you get jealous. And so I think there's a lot of jealousy and discontent out there these days. James will say more about this in chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, you desire and you do not have, so you quarrel. No, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why do you fight and quarrel? Because you want things that you don't have. Hey, James, what do you think is the trouble in our world today? Well, it's all of the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and that causes people to fight and quarrel and kill because they desire what they don't have. Where does this wisdom come from? This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, we don't talk about demons much in here. And I have a theory regarding the demonic that in a society that is so materialistic, right? I mean, our society is totally materialistic. Like, people don't believe in the supernatural. Like, it is not in Satan's interest to, like, show the supernatural world to a bunch of people who don't believe in the supernatural anyway, right? So, you know, James is just, James is fine to sort of keep the whole demonic thing here in the West under wraps. Other places in the world, not so much. But here, it's like, yeah, don't let them see the demonic, because if they see that, they'll realize, no, there's, there's more going on than what they can see. But our world is filled with demons and the demonic. Our world is filled with people yelling at people all the time. People are yelling on social media. People are texting in all caps. 
Every now and then I see a video of somebody like losing it at Starbucks. People yell at other drivers. I get, I get yelled at way more often these days. Maybe I'm just a complete idiot driver. But it feels like people are like yelling. Like I, I, somebody will pull up alongside me these days and just start like letting me have it. And I'm like, I, I, honestly, I have no idea what I did. I have no idea what I did to you. People yell at politicians. Politicians yell at politicians. People yell at their kids. I heard a story this week. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he was telling me about a guy who just stood up and started yelling in church. All of that is demonic. It's demonic. I think James would say, yeah, that, that's, that's demonic. And there is such a thing as righteous anger and righteous conflict, and we all like to think that our anger is righteous, but look at the fruit. What's the fruit? Are we fighting for peace and goodness and justice, or is it just more disorder and every evil thing? And I believe Christians are being seduced by this. There are professing Christians right now who want to fight about everything. It's, it's why I can't be on Twitter. It's, people want to fight all the time, and it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. And note what James says as a result, disorder and every evil practice. Can you think of a better way to describe our society than a society that is consumed with disorder and every evil practice? All right, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I have good news for you. There is a better way, and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who has made you alive, and you have ears to hear and eyes to see that there is a different kind of wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above. All right, so let's look at that wisdom, the fruit of wisdom from above. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Not only do I feel convicted when I read those fruits of, the, of worldly wisdom, but I feel kind of icky. It's like, ah, oh, I don't like that. So let's let the cleansing water of God's word refresh our souls as we consider God's wisdom, because these are the fruits of godliness. He says, wisdom from above is first pure. It's clean. It's free from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Wisdom from below starts with desires that are selfish. Wisdom from above starts with God's desires. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So godly wisdom is motivated not by selfish ambition, but by counting others as more significant than ourselves. Wisdom from above is first pure. Wisdom from above is peaceable, ready for peace, desiring peace, fostering peace. There are many people right now who seem like they don't want peace. Maybe you have some of them in your family. Maybe you go to school with some of them. Maybe you work with people like that, people who it seems like they don't want to have peace. I think we're seeing that more and more. Wisdom from above seeks peace with God and others. However, to be clear, and I have to be clear on this, it is not peace at all cost. Wisdom from above desires peace, but wisdom from above recognizes that sin in our hearts is going to keep us from peace with God and peace with others. So it's not, it's not just agreeing with everybody. It's not just, um, you know, okay, it's not what, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, what's good for you and what's good for you and what's good for you. It's, it's not that. Like, we're, we're all agreed that this is what's good for us, okay? And we want to be as peace as long as we can uphold what is written in the Scriptures. And after that, you know, Paul says in, in Romans 12, 
be at peace with all men as much as you are able. If there needs to be conflict, if there needs to be a break in a relationship, let it be because your stand has been on the word of God and that you've sought every way to make peace. Wisdom from above is open to reason. It's a difficult word. It means considerate. It conveys a respect for others. A reasonable person is not severe with others. A reasonable person is willing to be persuaded. I can know what I think about a matter, and I can still be willing to hear another person's perspective. It's good to think, I I don't agree with that person, but I have a better understanding of what they think. Wisdom is full of mercy. This one got me. Uh, Mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. And so mercy is the central part of the gospel. We have been shown mercy, and therefore we show mercy to others. Do you deal with people according to what they need, or do you deal with people according to what they deserve? Because sometimes these days, because of our lack of wisdom, we can be very like, that person needs to get what they deserve, and that is not being full of mercy. Moms and dads, are you full of mercy with your kids? Would your children say that you always make sure that they get what they deserve? Aren't you glad our Heavenly Father doesn't treat us like that? And I would say this, if your parenting philosophy can't be described as full of mercy, it's not wise, because that's what James says. Wisdom is full of good fruit, and this stands in contrast with every evil thing. Consequence of wisdom is that we will expect to see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Wisdom is impartial and sincere. Wisdom doesn't wear a mask. I mean that metaphorically. The wisdom of the world leads to people trying to staple good fruits onto their trees. The wisdom of the world says, I need to show my good fruits, so I gotta, I gotta come up with some fake fruit, and I gotta, I gotta staple it on the trees, right? W- wisdom of the world is the, you know, it's the, it's the selfie. It's the like, look, I'm in church. Look, I'm at a mission trip. Look, I'm doing a good thing. That's wisdom of the world. That's, that's not wisdom that is sincere and impartial. Remember, if you belong to the world, you have to justify yourself And if you have to justify yourself, you have to constantly tell everybody how good you are, and you have to manufacture good deeds. That's not sincere. Wisdom from above is the real deal because the wise person does good deeds and doesn't even stop to make sure anybody's watching. If I am justified by Christ's sacrifice, I don't have to justify myself, and I can be free to serve God with joy for his sake. James said that the life of worldly wisdom leads to chaos and every evil thing. What does the life of wisdom from above lead to? It leads to peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let's go back to James's original question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Does anybody want to raise their hand? I don't. Because we live with these hearts that are dripping with the effects of the fall. And every day we Christians have to get up and we fight against the wisdom of the world and we put off the old man, and we put on the new man. And first of all, I would just ask you this morning, are you in the fight? Like, are you a person who has recognized, I need to adhere to the wisdom from above, but I have this sinful body, and thank God I'm forgiven, but I want to do better? Have you put your trust in Jesus and believed? Do you believe that his way is a better way? James is like his big brother, He's, 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 a, he's a black and white guy. There's no gray. There's no gray with James. There's no gray with Jesus. Jesus said there's two roads, one broad and one narrow. There's two trees, good fruit, bad fruit. There's two foundations, one on the sand and one on the rock. James says there's two kind of wisdom, worldly and from above. And I think we can allow ourselves sometimes to think, 
well, there's kind of these two extremes of wisdom. There's like wisdom from the world. This is like Hitler and abortionists and LBGTQ activists and et cetera. You know, that's wisdom from below. And then there's, you know, wisdom from above, which is like really serious, like crazy Christians. And I'm kind of in the middle. I'm just trying to kind of like strike the balance. And we fancy that there's this middle ground that's just like neutral wisdom. Admit it, like you think that, right? Like there's, there's, there's some middle ground and it's, it's like, it's not wicked, but it's not like crazy, nerdy, fundamentalist Christian either. It's just somewhere in the middle. We don't want to be extremes. And James is like, no, there's only demonic and Christ-like. There's chaos, there's peace, and you need to pick a side. Which side's it going to be? Are you going to be a friend of the world because that makes you an enemy of God? Are you going to be a friend of God and that makes you an enemy of the world? I think we need to be more committed than ever to the wisdom that comes from above so that we can live these lives of peace. I want my life to be peace, to describe as a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Because I do think, brothers and sisters, this is kind of a like Elijah and the prophets of Baal opportunity. You know, you guys live according to your selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, and I'm going to live according to God's wisdom and then let's just see what the fruit is. Let me show you my commitment to the wisdom from above by the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control that flows out of me. And, and then don't you want that peace rather than the chaos in which you live your life? So here's how I think of this, and this has been helpful for me. This is very practical in my marriage and parenting. Do you know what it feels like when like you're having an argument with your wife or you're getting annoyed with your kids or somebody at work and that that you know for me it's like right here it like starts to well up in me it's like tension it's like uh you know some discussion isn't going my way or i'm getting annoyed someone is doing something i don't like and let's just be honest it happens most at home you know it's like, uh, i feel it and I, I have just i have come to recognize and i've shared this with some of you before if by God's grace, I can do some self-examination at that moment. Like, okay, things, I, I'm not at peace. Something's rubbing. How can I listen to the wisdom of the word at this point? How, though, am I listening to my own selfish ambition and, 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 and bitter jealousy? Yeah, so, so what is it? What is it that I want so bad that I'm willing to sin to get it, that I'm feeling in my heart right now? Is it being right? Is it peace and quiet? Do I want my peace and quiet? Sometimes I want my peace and quiet. Is it comfort? Is it my commitment to how I think things should go? What am I doing to contribute to this problem? Again, by the grace of God, y'all, believe me, do not, do not hear me saying that my home is one fount of self-examination, you know, seeking, you know, uh, godly wisdom all the time. There, there are plenty of times when I say to myself, nope, I'm going, and I regret it. But in this state, am I able to respond in the gentleness and the meekness of wisdom? Or do I continue to respond out of selfishness? And I need to recognize that when I choose other than God's wisdom, I am choosing to listen to that which is demonic and unspiritual and earthly that comes from below. And that's, that's heavy. Like, it's not just unwise. <laughs> put it, try to put it in that perspective sometime. When you're trying to decide, how am I going to respond? Just ask yourself, is, now, is this just unwise or is it demonic? Ooh, I don't want to be demonic. I mean, unwise, I'll be unwise all the time. But I don't want to be demonic. That's different. And you know what demons like to do? They like to destroy. You know what Jesus does? He builds up. Which path are we going to take? 
And I would just ask you in closing here to work backwards through this passage this morning. Is your life characterized by disorder and every evil thing? Just think about where that disorder comes from because you're probably listening to wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. And that could be rooted in your own selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Repent. Listen to the other source of wisdom. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask for wisdom from the God who will give you generously and without reproach. I say this all the time, but it's so important. Your Father in heaven will not say, "Eh, you should have asked before now. He is so ready to answer that prayer. So let that be our prayer this morning. Let me pray for us, and then Tony's going to come and lead us in the Lord's table. Father, I, I just simply ask that you would give us grace to think these kinds of thoughts. And Father, I confess to you, in front of these people, my brothers and sisters, in front of you, I do not always think like this. It is effort, and it is fewer and farther between than it should be. But I know I have seen the fruit in my life of when I am able to take my thoughts captive, as your word says, and to apply godly wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. May we be a church that demonstrates this to our families, to our friends, to our fellow believers. And Father, would you deliver us from this world of upset and disorder and chaos and every evil thing? Thank you for the book of James. Guide us as we go through it. I pray that it would be a blessing. Let us start today with with that goal in mind uh, throughout this fall. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.